0: Teaching Journey podcast acknowledges the traditional custodian of the country and pays our respects to the elders past and emerging and recognises their continuing connections to the land, waterways and community. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. This episode was recorded on the Wurundjeri Land. Hi y'all, I'm Dee, your host and you're listening to Teaching Journey Podcast, Connecting with Early Education, episode 20. In this episode, I sat down with Sarah-Louise Gandolfo. Sarah-Louise is an exceptional leader and advocate for the early years sector and have many years of experiences within the sector with multiple roles and leadership hats. She's now a consultant and founder of Learning to Lead in Early Childhood, which you can find linked to her website on the show notes. We spoke about leadership and Sarah Lewis talks about kind leadership. She also breaks down and clarifies the distinctive differences between kind and nice leadership. She said kind leadership is about doing the right thing, but a lot of it is being clear, clear with expectations, clear with instructions, essentially clarity within ourselves. And I think back to the times when I was in a managerial position. And I remember so many times when I was uncomfortable to ask or have a difficult conversation and I would just rather do it on my own. Or just like when I wanted to please people, just as Sarah Lewis was describing the nicest space of leadership. And I actually really wanted to be just nice. For me personally, it took me a good year to figure out that I was always the one that people reached out to to solve problem. My head was constantly in a different place I felt overwhelmed all the time. I was constantly busy, but yet felt like I haven't achieved anything. I also remembered the feeling of the hour body experience, like I was at work, but not really there at the same time. And when I was at work, I was thinking about resting. And I was resting, I was thinking about work. I was essentially deep in burnout. And I did manage to ask Sarah Louise this question when she kept on saying, I didn't do a good job then, I didn't do a good job. And I wondered if, that was a similar of a time when she was burned out because that's how I felt and I still feel about it about that period of time now. I was so exhausted, overwhelmed and underwhelmed at the same time that I believed the narrative of me not being good enough at my job regardless of people telling me otherwise. Researchers found that early child educators experience a higher risk of burnouts than any other occupations. Sign of burnout can be some of the things I have described before and more importantly would affect your mental health, feeling constantly depleted and in constant negative space. It will not only affect your professional space but also your relationship with others, at your home and also yourself. I'll attach some of the articles on burnout in the earlier sector in the show notes. But what I really want to draw on is the importance of recognising when you are in that space is to acknowledge that and find ways that you can support yourself to prioritize you and it can take a really long time i myself still find it a struggle and it is my default working mode and i would have to actively and consciously work my way out of it if you're not feeling like any of what i've just described it would be a great opportunity to think about the time when you felt burnt out or overwhelmed what did that feel like What can you do or who are your support system that you can reach out to? Another great tip is to know the different method of self-care that works for you. Not for others or what others are telling you that you should be doing, but what that works for you best. I'm not a medical professional and so it's always important to reach out to a medical professional for professional advice, help and support. So here it is, episode 20 with Sarah-Louise Gandolfo. Enjoy. Welcome, Sarah-Louise, to the Teaching Journey podcast. I am so very excited to have you here because your name has been actively in my social media algorithm for a while now. Uh, And I think I remembered seeing your name for the first time on one of the Early Childhood Facebook groups back to, I think, during COVID times, um, you know, when there was a lot of things was happening in the sector, and I remember seeing your name popping up constantly in the chats, and I felt like your voice was such an advocate to the professionalism and educational work that we, it was evolving significantly during that time, so, and I am very fascinated to how you reached to that point as well, but, and then we're going to talk a little bit about that, that, that advocacy and that strong urge to share um, within a professional space. Um, you are now an early child consultant, uh, and you have a business called Learning to Lead in Early Childhood, uh, and a space in Melbourne. You have a Master's in Education Leadership, and is also an academic lecturer. Uh, you're part of ECA Victorian Committee, and have recently spoke at the recent ECA conference in Adelaide, uh, and many other conferences as well. And you've run workshops for early child professionals. You're also a writer, and specifically one that I'm very much interested in talking about today is your recent publication work with ECA, Beyond Passion, Building Professional Identity, which is very much about the podcast. Um, But these are just some of the very few work that you have done, and I think I've only covered 2% of the work that you've done (laughs) this year, specifically, within the early child space. And I really want to get to that, but I also really want to get to the very beginnings of your early child journey. You know where did all that passion starts in early child sector? What did that look like for you? And who was Sarah Louise as an educator or teacher back then? Oh, I mean, you're asking
1: the the hard questions here <laughs> straight away. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, it's, I always I always get a bit blushy when people talk about all the things that I've done. But I mean, I'm so I'm so committed to this sector, and I'm so you know not everyone likes the word passionate but it, it's very much in my vocabulary. I am incredibly passionate about creating space for early childhood professionals yeah. to thrive, to flourish, and to find themselves in the way that I found myself in this sector as well. Um, so I started in the sector, it was 20 years ago this year, so it was 2003 um, that I landed in the local Sessional Kindergarten Um, As a volunteer, that's where my brother and sister had attended um, and the teacher had said, come along and just kind of join in and see what it's all about. Um, As a teenager, I didn't have a lot of direction in terms of what I wanted to do, who I wanted to become. There was stuff in there about teaching and I had teachers at at high school that, you know, kind of were pushing me in that direction, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really know what that would look like. And so having that opportunity, I guess, to volunteer my time and actually spend some time with children in a play-based environment certainly put me on that path to the possibility that early childhood could be something that I could do. Um, And then when I was 16, I was very fortunate to have um, a community mentor was working at a local long daycare. And she said, you know, we just need someone in the school holidays. We just need someone to cover some breaks every now and then. Would you be interested? And back then you could be 16 unqualified <laughs> and you were allowed to be left unsupervised with children. It's just, it, it blows my mind. That was less, you know, less than 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took that on and I was actually at that service. I think it was about five or six years that I stayed on as a casual while I did, you know, I finished high school, I went off and did my diploma full-time, four days a week over at Swinburne. Um, And I just, there was just something about it. That service is still there. They are doing absolutely amazing work. It's an exceeding rated service now. And I just think they they so fundamentally changed who I was and set me up on this path for wanting more for myself. Um, The owner was incredibly supportive. Um, whenever I asked for more responsibility or to take something on. And when I did eventually move on, um, you know it was it was to become a room leader because she didn't have those positions to offer me at the time, and it was very much, you no, know, I wish you well and all the best. So mm-hmm. I think having having a strong leader, having that mentor in the service, certainly put me on that path to acknowledging that there was more to early childhood than just working with children there were these other opportunities that existed and they really opened my eyes to that. And looking back now, like how
0: does that, I guess, shape who you are as a leader? Because you have this fantastic mentor who is able to give you those opportunities and and that makes a huge difference for a lot of beginning teachers who are getting into the workforce at the moment. How does that look like for you as a leader now? Yeah. and be able to shape that within your practice. yeah I,
1: I often think back to that time and and wonder about what it was about those two women in particular mm. that that kind of that, that stayed with me i mean that was 20 years ago it mm. just it stuck with me and the the thing that i remember the most is this idea of kindness and it's not the same as niceness and this is something that i talk about quite a lot that kindness and niceness are two different things but they were genuinely kind. They were genuinely wanting to work with me. They saw the skills that I had even as essentially a child, as a 16, 17 year old, you know, they saw that potential and they gave me those opportunities. And as I kind of grew in my career in that space, they continued to give me those opportunities. So when I kind of fell into that space of, you know, the inclusion support educator, working one-on-one with a child with autism, They saw that I had the ability to be in that space and to support that child and that family in a really integrated and inclusive way. And it was something that other members of the team were perhaps struggling with at the time. So given an opportunity like that, it was a leadership role without the title of leadership to kind of go, you know, this is what we can do just because he's nonverbal doesn't mean he can't do the group time. Just because he's non-verbal doesn't mean he can't participate in our games. And so slowly, slowly, we were able to kind of build this culture of inclusion at a service that perhaps wasn't, it wasn't a strength, it wasn't not happening, but it wasn't a strength of the team purely because they didn't have the experience. So, you know, I think that was a really nice way of giving me some responsibility, giving me some leadership without a title. And I think that's the kind of thing that stayed with me all these years, is that while I have been in leadership roles, I've been very sure to make sure that others can express their leadership in multiple other ways. Now it looks like people having titles. I mean, people, you know, love to be a sustainability officer or World and Safety or whatever, you know, reconciliation plan, whatever it is. But there, there are these moments of incidental leadership that happen. And I think because I've had that very early experience that, shaped who I was as a leader, that's now what I'm bringing to the table. That's what I'm encouraging people to start to embrace, is go, where can you show leadership? Where can you show advocacy, even if you don't have the title of that? Where are those opportunities?
0: Mm. And I feel like having sometimes even the word leadership Mm. scares a lot of people because it's almost like, oh, I need to be someone. I need yeah. to be the front, the person who's at the front, leading the pack or leading the change. But I do believe and I completely understand with you know all the things that you just mentioned because all of us do have a leader in us in some shape or form, um, and it's about creating those opportunities for everyone to lead or, or to you know I guess to make a change in their own pathway in their own space as well so i think that's also really important going back to the kind leadership because often the word kindness that connotation within our early child sector is that oh yeah everyone's kind and we're nice and we're nurturing what is that difference to the kind of
1: leadership that you're talking about here? Mm, yeah so kind leadership for me is really about the courage to essentially do the right thing Um, So when we sit in a space of niceness, we actually sit in a space of, you know, wanting everyone to just feel good. We don't want anyone to be uncomfortable. We just want to smooth it all over. And as the leader, we kind of take on a lot of the work ourselves because we kind of don't want to burden other people. But when we sit in a space of kindness, we're, we're essentially doing the opposite. So there's going to be a little bit of boat rocking. There's going to be some people who have to sit in a space of uncomfortability with a new idea or a new process or a new system, whatever it is. But they, they're going to need to sit in that because we know it's for essentially the greater good. And so we can look at it by sort of thinking about Brene Brown's work and thinking about clear is kind, unclear is unkind. Brene's very much talking about the messaging around courage and how we talk to people, um, particularly in a feedback kind of space. And when we're kind, we can sit in that space of saying, actually, you know, something went wrong today, but let's work out a system to fix it. You know, it's not that you're in trouble, Mm -hmm. but I'm also just not going to ignore it because if we ignore it, we're just being nice and we're just moving on with our day and, you know, we don't want anyone to be upset or whatever. But when we're kind, we actually want to fix the issue so then it doesn't become a bigger issue. It doesn't affect more people. And it actually makes your work a lot easier when you've got a kind leader because you have really clear expectations. Your policies and systems are set in stone. You know what to expect the moment you walk in the door. But kindness also creates this kind of space for trying new things, because we know the parameters that we work within. And so we know which box we can kind of push a little bit to get outside of. And we know which ones we have to stay inside of, you know? Um, this, this, I guess this leads to, I guess, a space of creativity as well where we have more options in our work where we're not feeling stifled mm. as well. So, yeah, kindness, yeah, kindness and niceness are not the same. They're certainly not the same. And I think that that courage lens needs to come into it as well when we're acting in that space. And that's a challenge, isn't it, to find that? 100%, <laughs> because as the leader, to move from niceness to kindness takes a lot of energy it takes a lot of courage it takes a lot of your thinking space um you know and if I think about you know a really easy example is thinking about rostering Mm. and the nice leader will go oh you want an early you want an early you want okay I'll give everybody early and suddenly we're left with not enough staff at the end of the day and we have to go back and say oh sorry guys I know I said that you could all have early but you can't Right, so you've created this this space of mistrust. But if we go, okay, well, here's the roster, let's work together. Um, I know we need three people on earlies and I need three people at the end of the day. How do we manage this together? How do we create a space where everyone's getting what they need? And um, this is exactly the type of approach I took at the last service that I was the director of. And the team actually came up with a beautiful system of it was a weekly roster rather than a fortnightly or a monthly or a three monthly or whatever it was before where they all got earlies and lates every week and they were able to work together to go, oh, your child's got something on Monday night, so I'll do the late and then when my child's got something on Tuesday night, I'll do the early. And they, everyone was able to just be grown-ups and be adults and be respectful in the workplace and work it out themselves. So that space, of, but that took me having to step back. That took me having to go, I am not in control of this even though the easiest thing for me would just be like, you're on early, you're on late and we're done. But, you know, we saw a huge change in morale. You know, we were going from five, six, seven people off a day sick to maybe one who would be genuinely unwell. Um, You know, I mean, that for me, that was such a significant Mm. and pivotal moment in reflecting on I don't need to be that person kind of pointing fingers and we, we do it my way everyone had a role to play in that and that space of kindness led to a greater impact for the children then as well.
0: Yeah and I think what you've just described, uh, leadership in a nutshell within the early child profession is very different to in any form of a business structure of leadership where you know you've got a top-down approach but in early childhood, it's about building and working in partnership. We talk so much about partnership within the framework um, and that to be able to let go. And that's a really, really tricky thing as a leader. And you spoke a little bit about that pivotal moment when you just realized that. Was there any other moment that you kind of go, hang on, I'm leading too front and I really need to step back and scale down a little bit?
1: Yeah. And what did that look uh- like for you? I think at, at that same service, I mean that, I mean, that was such a beautiful service and I had such an amazing, huge team. I had 50 educators um, when, at, at, by the end. Um, there were these moments around orientation and how we do tours and I was very fortunate in that team to be surrounded by a very large group of women who were all bi or multilingual and that, that reflected the community that we worked in. And all the families that were coming in were all bio-multilingual. And I had this kind of realisation that by me doing the tour, it wasn't actually reflective of the team that we had. I'd kind of go around the room and go, oh, yeah, I've got four, you know, educators in here and they all speak different languages. And, okay, now we move on to the next one. But when I started to slow down and actually think about the fact that there was a strength here in bilingualism, multilingualism, I took a step back and I actually started to train some of these educators to do the tours themselves or I could support them and just kind of stand behind them as they, they did the chat. And we actually had a greater enrollment conversion from those tours mm. because those, those families were actually able to hear about the service in their home language um, and not have to translate everything I was saying from English into their language and, you know, tell their child and the educators could just speak with the whole family in a really holistic way. Um, And yeah, like I said, the the families were then more likely to enroll, more likely to stay. um, And it meant that the family already had this kind of, it it, it was like this soul connection with the service that was so beyond anything I had experienced you know, in my entire career. Um, So I think that was another real big moment for me that I didn't need to be the head person, always seen by the families as being in control It was very much about we're all in this together and um you know this was kind of at the start of the COVID times as well so there was that kind of feel of how are we going to get through this together um and not be these kind of separate entities of different people in different places so yeah i think that was another really big moment for me
0: and that's such a good example i hope people are listening in and kind of go oh i've never considered getting educators who work with children every day, who are living and breathing the center's philosophy and pedagogical practices, to actually do the tour of the center, to highlight all the amazing things that you've been doing. And how important is that for the educators to kind of go, I know this center really well. This is why I enjoy working here and come in. I want to share with you my experiences. So that's a wonderful approach. I really like that idea. Now, when we talk about challenges in your journey, so you've, so you spoke a little bit about you directing mm-hmm. and what happens to, you know, I guess before your manager role mm-hmm. as a teacher, what were one of the challenges or perhaps, you know, going back to into the profession, I know that you started when you were really, really a baby, basically <laughs> 16, but that pivotal point where you need to up your leadership, up your teaching uh, roles and responsibility. What were one of the challenges that
1: you remembered back then? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think when I when I got my first room leader position, um, I was one of five educators in the classroom. It was a toddler room, twenty children back in those days with the ratio. Um, you Hang know, on, really, 20 you children think, with five educators? Well, one was the lunch cover. Yeah. Well, so there was four, four and then, yeah. yeah and, and, but I was the leader of these people. Yeah. I was like t- was 21. I might not even have been 21 yet. And I just remember being in that room just going, I know children. I know how to work with children. Talk to me about inclusion. You know, I'm feeling confident in my abilities. But adults, I was completely out of my depth. This this need to you know make sure everyone had had a lunch break and that everyone was happy in their roles and that you know there was this kind of cohesiveness around how we were going to respond to toilet training and all the things that come with you know two to threes that completely shook me and i don't think i did it well at all um i don't think even when i had left that role like i still didn't feel like i had a good grasp on that and that probably took me a good seven, eight years of working in leadership roles in, as a room leader um, before I kind of had that confidence to go, actually, I do know how to talk to adults and I do know how to create a, a psychologically safe environment for everybody to be able to contribute and talk to each other. But, yeah, that that's certainly, and I, I think, you know, now working in, you know, the academic space, doing some lecturing as well that's certainly what i'm hearing about some of the challenges that the pre-service teachers are having now so we're still it's the same challenge it's the same mm-hmm. thing because we're so we're, we're taught we're taught how to work with children we're talking we're taught about pedagogy and theories and all these amazing things that leading a team when you're all different ages you've got all different levels of experience you've got all different philosophical backgrounds wow you know i just. Anyone who can do it and do it well, I really admire because it's really hard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it really question who you are as a leader as well. And on top of all the roles that we have, it's like, oh, hang on. Don't forget that you actually work with four other people in the team. And so mitigating all of that can be quite overwhelming. So how do you look
1: after yourself
0: during that period of time then?
1: Um, I, I think during that period of time, I didn't do it very well. I think as I got a bit older and a little bit wiser, I think I'll say, um, I realised the value of work-life balance. I mean, back in those early days, you know, I'd sit at home and, you know, cut out the, pre- the, you know, the pre-cut templates and make all the little squares out of paper and get everything ready for, you know, the week ahead And that kind of, that was my life. Like when I think back to then, my life was about my work and I loved what I did, don't get me wrong. And I obviously made that choice for myself. Nothing was ever kind of put on me. Um, But I, you know, I realised kind of as I got to kind of mid-20s, late-20s, that there was this real need to kind of reconsider how I used my time at work and what I could accomplish rather than going, oh, don't worry, I'll just take it home. You know, don't worry about my planning time today. I'll just do it at home. Well, if I can't have my planning time at work, well, that can wait till next week then. And having to really, you know, be strong in that kind of I'm going away this weekend or I've got plans with friends. I will not have time to do what you're asking me to do, but I'll do it next week when I'm back at work. No problem. That's a huge thing too, though, for people, that if you haven't got that kind of resilience is the wrong word, but um. You know, well, I guess it's leadership as well, isn't it? It's that confidence to kind of put your foot down and go, actually, I matter too. And so does my free time.
0: Yeah. But putting a boundary for yourself, essentially. And I remember that's a really hard thing for me to do personally, because I felt like I needed to fix everything that I, you know, when I walk in, everything needs to be perfect for me and my team. The children walk in and it's beautiful and the space is amazing. It's all set up, you know, structures and systems are all in line and everyone's all on the same page. But to kinda go, actually, I'm feeling really burnt out right now. I cannot take this home. I need to draw a line in the sand that this is a certain time. I mean obviously not the moment it's five o'clock you clock out and you walk out the door and you know you let it go because that never happens within the early child space. But to acknowledge that this is kind of getting a little bit too much and too overwhelming, do you remember feeling kind of like, oh, okay, this is I, – I need to make a change now. Do you remember that headspace when you kind of go, all right, I, I, there needs to be a different method because it's not working mm. now and I've yeah. always been fixing things. And now I have to draw the line with myself and the team. And that transition can be really really hard because not only like you said you have to be really courageous and kind of say actually no i have to i'll work on it next week when i come in next and also for your team to realize that actually hang on i need to find other ways to to help you and support you in other method because you know i can see that sarah louise is getting really burnt out and i need to jump in
1: do you remember that moment I do I do it, it was at that same service where I was directing and when I arrived at the service there was a bit of turmoil um, the director of a very long time had you know recently um, retired which is wonderful um, and they'd been a little bit directorless for a little bit of time um, and so it was everyone was kind of a bit frantic and a bit frazzled when I arrived. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to put in so much work. I am I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to have to do that. Hmm. And I spent probably a good six months of at least an extra hour every day unpaid because there was just things to do. And there was papers to get sorted. You know, we were coming up for A&R. And I was like, everything. I just need to do everything. And we shut down over Christmas and I realised that I was absolutely exhausted. And I just went, none of those families are thinking about me over Christmas. (laughs) None of my team are thinking about me over Christmas. (laughs) But my poor family, you know, I'm doing shopping on Christmas Eve because I haven't had these opportunities to go out and go shopping because I've been at work. Mm. And I've got a young family, I've got two young kids. So, you know, that was a real, I think that was a real wake-up call for me Mm. that actually no one's going to be worried about me other than my family um and i kind of you know worked really hard with the you know the area manager and the manager above me we looked at you know putting in different roles there was administrative roles there was a two ic and ed leader cause at the time i was kind of doing all of that as we built occupancy um but having those extra people meant that i could go right you're taking on the reconciliation action plan oh, you're going to do those center tours with the educators you know and all the enrolments, and i don't need to do absolutely everything now that was a wonderful situation because i had that support from the people above me but i am conscious that's not the reality for everybody but i think that kind of that narrative around who is actually going to care whether you're at work or at home the family certainly don't care if you're there 10 hours a day your team probably don't care that you're there 10 hours a day but your family will and the people, you know, that you spend time with, they're the ones that are going to care. So I think for me that that was a big moment. And I mean, you know, talk to my friends, talk to the people that know me. I still work a hell of a lot um, and I still struggle with work-life balance, but I think I've found that happy medium now of, you know, if I work really hard on Monday, on Tuesday I take a little bit of extra time for myself and to spend with the family. So I'm finding ways to balance it that aren't a traditional You know, I work 9 to 5 and then I'm clocked off. Maybe I need to work 12 till 8 to get that work done, but I'm spending the morning getting the children ready for school or having breakfast with them or whatever it is. So I think we can be a little bit creative with that work-life balance as well. And I love the term work-life integration because when we're in early childhood, the reality is we are constantly thinking about the children and the families We are constantly thinking about our colleagues. We want it because we want the best for everyone. That's why we're here doing what we do. Um, But I think, yeah, finding creative ways of, you know, if it's a a weekend a month where you just kind of clock out and go away, get, you know, leave your computer at home and leave the scissors and no cutting for you this weekend, you know. Um, You know, I think we've got scope now to do that and and that was a lesson that I had to learn kind of the hard way, but Mm. I'm glad that I learned that.
0: And that yeah. is so hard for all of us because a lot of what we do entering into the profession is for children. Yeah. And, you know, yes, we do create a mark and we talk about the significant role that we play within the sector and for the children. But in reality, that if that eats up our time with ourselves and our family and the impact that's happening at home, then that's a definitely a reality check that's really hard
1: a really hard pill to swallow i would say yeah um well when we think about you know it's that that old metaphor of you know when you're on a plane you put on your mask mm-hmm. first if the plane's going down and i think we i think as a sector we had to learn this the hard way through covid mm-hmm. that we had to do you know being in melbourne all the lockdowns and the extended amount of time that we had to spend at service with children or away from our families or whatever it was but we we had to learn to put our mask on first. Like we had to learn that our energy was, you know, it it wasn't infinite all of a sudden, you know. Now actually we have to protect ourselves. You know, a lot of the people that I was working with at the time were, you know, washing their groceries, you know, the outside of cans and wiping down boxes before they came in the house and they quickly realised that they couldn't then spend that energy at the service. They came, they did their job, absolutely they did and they gave it their all, but come 5 o'clock it was time for them to go because they essentially had this other full-time job they had to tend to. So, you know, I think, I think holding that metaphor of looking after yourself first is one of the greatest things we can do for ourselves in terms of preventing burnout. It's hard when you're in burnout and I did burnout a couple of years ago um, and I'm, I still feel like I'm on that recovery track but if we can prevent it before, if I if I can prevent it for you, but you know, so that you don't have to experience that, that that would be my number one tip. Is put that safety mask on first for yourself, and then we can give hundred and ten percent to those children every single day because you are feeling well and in control.
0: Yeah, yeah, filling your own cup first before you fill others. Like you cannot feel fill like others' cup definitely. Um, that's something that I am struggling with personally at the moment, and we all are. Um, and it's just definitely one that, uh, yeah, uh, a reminder for us all to practice yeah. every day. Now, you do a lot of advocacy work, um, and we spoke a little bit about uh, in your introduction. Where does this passion and energy, I know you spoke about passion <laughs> a little bit, but where does all this, you know, uh, the ability to advocate for the yeah. sector? Because mm. that takes a lot of courage as well. Yes. And I'm sure you've, uh, you know, um, you know, might have been in controversial conversations where you have to really, really advocate for, you know, um, your beliefs and your values and what you think, um, you know, what early childhood, I guess, reform would look like.
1: Where does all this passion come from? Mm. It, it comes from lived experience. And this is actually something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about recently, um because i had to i had to write down everything that i was doing and i was like oh gosh i'm doing a lot of this advocacy work and but why like why do i continue when i have been in that space of burnout why do i continue to put myself in these volunteer positions where i want to do more and be more and I, i realized a few things that in that first center that i was working at i remember these two little girls who looking back now were victims of domestic violence they were victims of family violence and I had no idea. I had no idea at the time. All I knew was that, you know, these two little girls, twins, they needed a little bit of extra love during the day. You know, we would comb their hair. We would wash their faces. We will make sure they were really well fed in the day. They just needed a little bit extra. And, you know, we'd often see mum kind of rush in, rush out, not wanting to talk. And one day they were just gone. They, they disappeared and they never came back. And I think about these little, two little girls all the time because I don't know what happened to them. Um, But it's taken reflecting on that moment to go, we need to do more to protect children. We need to do more to create cultures of child safety. And then there was this kind of extra thing that happened and it was about eight, nine years ago where I came out as queer. And so I knew nothing about the queer world. I knew nothing about the um, discrimination that people were experiencing and how absolutely challenging it was to come out as queer in the workplace. And it was through that lived experience, that personal experience, that I realized more needed to be done. And it was only a couple of years after that, maybe oh, it might even have already been about 18 months, that the social justice group were having their conference in Melbourne. And so I went along to that and that was the moment that I went, I was I mean I was crying the whole conference because it was so beautiful and the stories were incredible. But that was the moment that I kind of went, more needs to be done, but more needs to be done with children so that we're not having these conversations with adults who already have a preconceived mindset. Mm. So we want to work with the children to create, you know, people who are open, who are accepting, who are passionate in themselves about social justice. That's that. I think that was those moments that I just went, yeah, we've got to do more, we've got to be more here. And it's kind of zoomed off from there. You know, I didn't know about Early Childhood Australia until around that same time. And, you know, joining as a member is so important. And then suddenly you're getting advocacy updates in your inbox, going along to social justice group, you know, meetings or conferences or whatever it is. And we're seeing people's work in the advocacy space. And I think being involved in those, in those spaces actually lights that fire or puts the kindling on the fire so if it's already lit it's just adding to it but if it's not lit yet hearing those stories will light it and we don't really have a choice (laughs) once we've heard it we can't ignore it um once we've had those lived experiences we can't ignore it we've got to do more so i think that's where it kind of stems from for me
0: and do you think that going to this network conferences and meetings is that you kind of realize, hang on, there's a lot of other people like minded like me who have this fire and coming together with a bigger voice to get, you know, the message
1: out there. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I think that's that's the benefit of those networks and those groups. Because you kind of feel especially at the start, I think when I first came out, it felt very lonely and very isolating. Mm. Cause I didn't actually know any other queer people. I didn't know that there was a whole community out there. And so when I realised, actually, there's people doing this work, you know, actually, there was people advocating for refugee children. Actually, there are people advocating for neurodiverse and disabled children. Suddenly, I'm like, actually, we've got this huge community of people who care about the same thing. So that if I'm struggling in my space, I know that I can call XYZ and they're going to be on my doorstep and they're going to be helping me or I can jump on a Zoom with somebody who's got my back, who agrees with, you know, the kind of viewpoint that I've got and suddenly we've now got a collective effort rather than just my sole voice because I think that's one of the things, particularly around social justice, we, we do say that, you know, every person makes a difference, absolutely, but it's very hard to do it on your own. It's very exhausting we you know we we need those people around us we need to band together you look at the people out marching in support of palestine at the moment it's not one person sitting on the steps it's thousands and imagine just that feeling of knowing that you are part of something bigger than just yourself and just your you know your little pocket of life um yeah absolutely that collective nature is so important
0: yeah And in terms of your advocacy work, is there any point that you feel, hang on, is this, this is getting really uncomfortable now. Am I on the right pathway? Have you considered that?
1: Or this is getting
0: a little bit tricky or it's
1: getting really hard. Like am I, should I keep going? With this one yeah absolutely i think that kind of happens on a regular basis <laughs> yeah. i think when things in the world continue to happen um when i think specifically about you know queer advocacy and the work that we do in australia in that space we're a lot further ahead than other countries absolutely um and you know i remember seeing you know on instagram someone posting about the book bans in america and the types of books that were being banned and my heart just sunk And I went, my God, I'm doing all this work in Australia. We're part of these groups. We're doing this. We're doing that. And everything's going really well. There's still challenges, but we're still moving forward. And then we're 50 steps back in another country, in a major country, that has, you know, how many children living there and how many children are now affected? So it can be really disheartening and it can feel like you get to a kind of point where you go, what's the point? why are we even bothering, I'm tired, I don't have time in my diary to go to the meetings and do the work. But that's when we rely then on that collective. That's when we go, actually, it's not just me. And if I'm tired, it's okay, because someone else is doing it too. And so we can take that little break. And I know I've felt in that space a couple of times where I've kind of just taken a step back and go, you know what, I can't keep posting I can't keep having these conversations with people. I can't wear the T-shirt you know, that's gonna prompt that conversation. I can't do it. I just need some downtime. And I guess, you know, that goes back to that, that boundary setting and protecting our energy. Um, but knowing that we've got those people around us that even when it all gets hard, all I have to do is go to a social justice conference and I'm I'm reignited and I'm back and I'm I'm ready to go. Yeah.
0: And it's uh I, I think, you know, it's about finding that moment where you kinda of go, All right, I'm ready and I'm gonna reach out to that fire. I'm going to look for it and go back to my community. And I'm going to keep working on the work that I'm doing that I'm passionate working on. Absolutely. So what's next for you? What all the, all the work that you've done now, looking back,
1: what is the next progression for you? Um, I'm very much sitting in a space of wanting to work more with pre-service teachers. Um, because we've got this, I talk about it being an absolutely incredible opportunity. Unfortunately, COVID meant that we lost a lot of our um, very experienced educators, our teachers. The sector fundamentally changed. And that sucks. Like, that's, you know, call a spade a spade. That was not great. But what it's meant is that it's created this opportunity for up and coming teachers, for people who are reskilling, upskilling you know, finishing high school and joining us. And we've got this opportunity to create something that is absolutely sensational, that fits the needs of the current climate. Um, you know, it is tricky going through change, in particular here in Victoria. We've got so much reform happening and that can be really difficult. But when we've got this opportunity to embrace that from a really fresh new lens, that's the kind of space that I want to be in. Educators are coming in, teachers are coming in, they've got this theoretical knowledge, they've got a fire, they've got the passion, they're ready to go. And I just want to make sure that they stay, to be honest. Like, yes. I just want people to stay, you know, with the stats yeah. say they're going to stay for five years and then go. Mm. I want people to know, you know, after 20 years, I'm still here. There are so many of us that are still here and still doing this work because we love it, because there's so much to be gained It is joyful. It's hard, don't get me wrong, but it's joyful and it's fulfilling and I want those pre-service teachers to know and understand that and to feel that as they enter, that they're supported as well. Um, So I am sitting in that space of kind of doing, you know, some lecturing at university and doing the coaching and mentoring, um, you know, supporting organisations like The Front Project in the work that they do to support pre-service teachers But really, you know, it's just about being a voice for these people that are coming through who need that support, need that encouragement because we're not going to have a sector without them. So let's embrace them and bring them along on this amazing ride.
0: Yeah, and and creating a platform where we can all come together, have a shared understanding, you know, and, and sharing and being honest with the challenges, you know, and I think that's a lot of, Perhaps a little bit about you know that that teacher identity that we have to always perceive that we're always in check and that we're always doing all the right thing and it's a perfect uh, perfectionist world. But the reality that there are challenges and it's okay mm. to go through that and it's okay to talk about it and then creating you know I guess actionable work to move forward within that challenges space. I think that's really really important as well.
1: That's it, and I, I think Dee, you you've raised such an important point. Because I think it can get, particularly if you're on social media, mm. it can become a little bit of this echo chamber of, you know, reform is bad and change is bad and everything's hard and everything's kind of going on. But actually we, we need to go, yeah, it is. So what are we going to do about it? Because we can't just keep sitting in that space because it, it's just going to bring us all down and we're going to crumble as a sector. But we, you're right, it's about acknowledging and just going, yeah, stuff gets hard let's create a change let's advocate for better let's go to those union meetings let's join up let's do that work to make sure that you know just because it happened to me doesn't mean it has to happen for you let's create that systemic change
0: yeah most definitely and i know you mentioned a little bit but what's your vision and i usually put this out there if you're a prime minister of Australia. What would be that one change that you would like to put in action for
1: early child sector? I would like to see better ratios. I would like to see more teachers working with zero to threes. Mm. I think there's huge opportunities there. Um, But I think that the big thing for me is around value. Um, You know, if everything had to stay the same but all we got was a little bit more recognition from not just from families but from communities, from politicians, whoever creates the funding, I don't even know anymore. You know, if if we could just have that little bit more value added to us, you know, talked about in a respectful way that this, you know, it wasn't just a place to put your children so that you can go off and work because we know that when we invest, we get these amazing economic outcomes, you know, like great, but can we just value the work that we do right here and right now? That these children are thriving, that we're creating safe spaces, that you know now we've got children who can access early learning, which is absolutely amazing. Let's acknowledge that for what it is. This is about children right here and right now. So you know ratios, ECTs in under threes, amazing. Reality is just just value us, just yeah. see us yeah. for the amazing people that we are.
0: Yeah, and stop calling us childcare. Oh, no. Change that name. <laughs> Oh, my goodness.
1: You know. But don't leave care off, Dee. Yeah, am still a- advocating for care, but, yeah, definitely not child care.
0: No, yeah, education and care, yeah. To finish off, unfortunately, one advice that you would tell your beginning teacher self, what would that be? Uh,
1: good question. I think it would be believe in your abilities. Mm. I think... Particularly as a new a new educator, back in the day, you know, I'd go to the PDs and I would immediately change everything that I was doing. And then I'd go to another PD and I'd change everything that I was doing. And then I'd read an article and I'd change everything I was doing. And I think I did that for probably a good 10 years. (laughs) Then I just kind of went with the trends or, you know, adopted something that wasn't really contextual. And now I sit in a space of going, what can I take from this that will actually benefit the work that I'm doing now? So I think you know that took me a very long time to kind of come to that realization. But as a new grad, you know, go in with the knowledge that actually you do know what you're doing, and if you're there for the right reasons, if we're there for children, we're there for families. You you know, you know what you're doing fundamentally. Take the ideas that you're learning, but fit them into your context rather than trying to change your context for whatever you're learning. Yeah. That would be my advice. Yeah, yeah.
0: Fantastic advice because that is one of the challenges. And I love how you said it will take years. It's not an immediate, you know, within six months, one year, two years. Sometimes it takes 10 years. And it took me 10 years to actually figure out who I am and what my identity looks like. You know and and like you said you go in you hear someone fantastic kind of go oh this is what how we should be doing it this is the checklist <laughs> kind of go oh all right i'm gonna change that and so you're constantly embodying other people and you forget who you are in that process and it's a really really yeah it's it's, it's, a, it's a journey i would say uh, and it's the only and the only person that you can go through that journey is yourself figuring yourself out yeah well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is amazing. It's, you're such an inspiration and um, yeah, you're passionate and you've definitely lit a fire in me. Like, I'm just so excited for, you know, the, the work that we do. And, and also there's a lot of space. We need early childhood to go on. There's just so much work that needs to be done. Um, and and yeah, it's just amazing to hear you speak. So thank you so much for the
1: time. Thanks for having me, Dave. Thanks.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Teaching Journey Podcast. We hope you found our discussion valuable and inspiring. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or would like to share your journey with us, we would love to hear from you. Reach out to us directly on Instagram by searching Teaching Journey Podcast. Links to the presenters and resources mentioned in this podcast are in the show notes. Once again, I'm Dee, your host, and thank you for being part of the Teaching Journey community. So let's keep our conversation going, keep inspiring one another, and keep amplifying our voices to create the ripple effect of high-quality early education. Until next time, happy teaching!